0: Amen, amen. <clears throat> I'm gonna take and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. And we are continuing to open up that portion of the chapter that addresses Jesus's interaction with the rich young ruler. And before I read beginning at verse 18, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Now, gracious Father, it is in Jesus' name that we come before you asking, Lord, for your blessing. Lord, that your word may be opened up, particularly in this place. Lord, as we look at the rich young ruler, his interaction with Jesus particularly this morning as we open up, Lord, this deadness that existed within him, Lord, that we might examine our own hearts, that we might, Lord, drink deeply from this gospel and, Lord, we would not be found lacking in anything. Lord, so help us to understand, Lord, that we can be religious and not saved, Father, now bless the reading, the preaching of your word this morning, enlighten our minds and our hearts. Lord, give us the desire, the want to, the joy of receiving it, Lord, and applying it to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. For you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said, truly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much as this time and in the age to come eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, Brothers and sisters, another sermon on this text of Scripture is certainly not to tax your attention span at all, but to hopefully unfold and make uh, important connections that do lie within the text. This morning, as you see the title in your bulletin, The Picture of Religious Failure. And the rich young ruler is that. He is the picture of of what we can identify from the text as a religious failure he was very religious and yet he doesn't possess that one thing that brought him to Jesus to ask how shall he inherit eternal life what other things must he do in order to receive or earn eternal life? He certainly wasn't prepared for the answer Jesus gave to him. Again, because the text tells us that he left and he left very sad. But what I want to do this morning is to, for an order for us to benefit from the text I do want us to open up this idea of this religious failure. I don't take great joy in believing or at least having a conviction that there are many who fall into this category. That there are many people that we would label as good people that have an outward morality that is good for society and communities. And yet, that common goodness, let's just call it that, that common goodness that they possess will not earn them eternal life. It will not win the day. It will not win God over, and they will not pass judgment on that great day. And I think it's important for us to examine ourselves and to look at the text and to ask some basic questions of ourselves. Of ourselves. It is not intended for us to just preach to the outward religious and say, oh, them over there, those out there are are, you know, they. That's not the point here. The point is for us to come humbly and sincerely to God, to his word, and to sit at his feet and to say, Open up thy word, O Lord, and teach me thy ways. Now, the first thing I want to do is open up what I'm going to identify as the efficient cause of the rich young ruler coming to Jesus. I'm going to open that up. And then the second thing I'm going to do is identify at least four, maybe five. It depends on how far we get into it. I want to identify several failures or proofs that demonstrate that the rich young ruler was spiritually dead. I'm going to highlight from the text. I'm going to at least identify four to five proofs from the text that prove he was spiritually dead in his heart, and he did not possess the Spirit of God. Now, you can say, well, that's obvious. Well, I think some of them are obvious. Some of them might not be so obvious, but the point is that we collect them all together and look at the whole picture, right? That we have a good, sound, well, clear mirror, clean to look into as we examine Ourselves. Well, first let's address this efficient cause. Now, what is the efficient cause that brings the rich young ruler to Jesus to identify him as the good teacher and also to acknowledge that, well, he has kept the commandments, that that was a good thing for him to do? Well, simply. The efficient cause in this matter, and the reason so many people, I believe, fall into this category is because, beloved, there is but one true and living God. And that God is the Creator God. He's the one that made the world, He's the one that made us and put us in this world in order to live in it and to live in this world according to the law that was written upon our hearts. You could put it this way. All men have been made in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, as the Bible tells us that in the beginning God created man, male and female with a reasonable right intellect and immortal soul now we're going to look at some scripture but let's just put it this way that in the very beginning when god made man male and female and and gave to them a reasonable intellect the ability to reason, he also gave them an immortal soul. There was already a natural possession of that which is eternal. Not to mention the reward of it that came with the covenant of works. So say there was something very natural in man to Understand these things and even to desire these things. That was something very good, wasn't it? Well, the scriptures go on to teach us that they were endued with knowledge. There was they possessed knowledge. It wasn't just that they had a an intellect, they had the ability to know things, and they did know things from the very beginning knowledge, righteousness, and possess true holiness. Well, that's what it means, beloved. Have the law of God written upon their hearts, and they had the ability, being made in the image of God, to what? Fulfill it. Now, let's look at some scripture. I'm just going give you some of these scripture um, addresses, and you can look them up later. Some of these you're going to know. Genesis 2, 7, and the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, and then shall uh, they, be, and when they die, uh, The dust returned to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. Our body shall return to the dust from which it was made, and our spirits return to God. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not just true about you sitting in church, this is true about all mankind. God is the maker and creator of all men. That's why we see in the world a common goodness. That's why even the rich young ruler, even though he was completely bankrupt spiritually, he possessed an understanding and even a desire for eternal life. Where did that come from? It came from his being made in the image of God. And yes, since the fall, of course, it's defaced. It's been, well, it's been marred. It's polluted. That's why we use the word in this Reformed theology to talk about corruption and pollution. But the fall did not completely erase the image of God. And we'll look at various scriptures in just a second. Luke 23, verse 43, and this is Jesus speaking to one of the thieves on the cross. He says, verily I say unto thee, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus is acknowledging the fact that, well, there is another life outside of this one and beyond this one. And that's one of the reasons, beloved, it's, it, it, isn't it interesting? It doesn't matter what people group, it doesn't matter, you know, they The world is full of religious people. Atheism is a religion. It's the religion of man. man. It's the religion of, of science, and I wouldn't even call it even real science. It's pseudoscience. It's science that has been created in the image of man. Even though they're very contradictory, they can't live fully in the reality that man is God, Can they? No, there's a lot of inconsistencies there. And of course, I don't want to get in totally into the realm of apologetics, but I hope you can see the connections. I hope you can identify them. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 28, fear not them that can kill the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I mean, again, there's the intimation, isn't it, that that there is a legitimate fear of hell. There's a legitimate fear that men possess of what? Punishment. Punishment for what? Well, their deeds. The things that they have done in the body. The things that they have done in this life. That it's very common, no matter where you go, that there is some idea of what? Divine retribution. And it, and it doesn't matter if it's these man-made religions or whatever the case may be, but most of them have some, some form of retribution. Some idea and concept of judgment. And we see that prompting this rich young ruler These are the things that moved him. As we were made in the image of God, there's this endowment of knowledge, right? This righteousness and true holiness, that's important. There is this, even in the fallen, even in the unredeemed, the unregenerate, Because God is the true and living God, that He is the creator of all mankind, that He is the true governor of this world, that there, that man possesses this desire even for good. Remember when the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and calls him good, is He not at least implying a standard? Is he not at least judging Jesus by the other rabbis? And he's identifying Jesus as being the better of them. He's even identifying his own life as being better than most men. I've kept these commandments. That intimates that there is some standard. He possesses this ability. Beloved, we find this everywhere. And there's no exception You can't escape the fact that God is the living and true God. He's the creator of all men. You can't escape that reality. And men try, and they work hard at it, but they never can truly do it consistently. That's why we're called in the gospel to put on what? The new man. That's the idea Ephesians 4:24 and there are others but this is one serves our purpose that is put on the new man Paul says which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness you can see that there is this relationship of that original creation and that natural law given in the hearts written on the hearts of men and even the drafting of the Ten Commandments as the moral law, but also understanding that the gospel is the restoration of man in true holiness and righteousness. And I'm going to talk about that probably more next week. But you need to see the connections now that this this law that Jesus is going to use in order to to really prick the rich young ruler's heart, well, he's not not doing this just because the rich young ruler is outwardly moral and religious. No, he's doing this because this is the purpose of the law. This This is what the law does. The law identifies the sin. That's the purpose of the law. And we'll see that going forward. We must understand, beloved, that in man's original condition, God made him, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29, upright. God made man upright, but they, the text says, they sought out many inventions. Man chose to rebel against God. We call that the original apostasy, the original falling away, the original moment when, uh, uh, that original moment when man decided that they would live by their own understanding and not God's revelation. And, And this is vital, beloved, because again, How do we understand this desire, this strong desire of the rich young ruler? How does he come up with the standard of goodness? Where does all of this come from? How does he even have the motivation and the desire for eternal life? Because God is the true and living God. Because God has implanted it in the heart of every man, these things. And that's why we go forth with the gospel with great courage. And we should not back up. We should not be afraid. We should speak boldly these things because we know the truth. And of course, man has erected for himself religions to accommodate his lusts, his wants, his desires. To give him, even if it's a false assurance, but to give him an assurance that, well, somehow, some way, he or she is going to make it. You're going to be all right. Just keep chipping away at this works religion. You're going to get there someday. And... They can temporally harden their conscience. They can temporally subdue this desire of deficiency. How, 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 there's something lacking. But brothers and sisters, there is nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong with man wanting to serve God. The question is, what God are you serving? What life are you looking for? What reward, what heavenly reward are you seeking? Is it the right one? Do you have the right God? Do you have the right heaven? Do you have the right way? Do you have the right savior? See, that's always the ultimate question. That's why when people talk about, well, these things, I want these things, I long for these things, I seek for these things, I get it, I see it. Why? Because God, as the true and living God, is the efficient cause of all of that. That's how he made us from the very beginning of time. And as man began to spread out all over the earth, what did they begin to create for themselves? False gods. False religions all with some form of form of redemption, most all having some shedding of blood, having a recognize that, the, that, that, that sin requires some bloodletting, sin requires the death of the innocent, right? Now, I set that before you just so, brothers and sisters, as you can be fortified in this fact that, well, Obviously, the application or the truth that flows from what I just said in your hearing is evolution isn't true. Evolution is a false gospel. It's a bankrupt philosophy. It can't be truly, um, how how do I say this? I mean, it's bankrupt. It's insufficient to ask to answer those basic life questions. It's insufficient. It's not a good God, it's not a good gospel, it's lacking, it's a false God. And those who have put their trust in that will be disappointed. Well, whether it's evolution or aliens and coming and seeding this world, That didn't happen either. That's a false God. That's a false philosophy. That's a false idea. Why? That's just another distraction from the true and living God. It's just another way not to give God glory. Brothers and sisters, what's the overarching theme of Genesis to Revelation? Revelation. The glory of God, that's the overarching theme. Now, there are other subordinate themes here, but the overarching theme is God's glory. And when we allow ourselves, when we fall into these these pitiful ideas, explanations for things, well, we're failing to give God glory. And I want you to give God glory. I want us all to give God glory. And the way to give God glory is to understand that every interaction we have all comes because God has planted himself in this world. God has revealed himself. God has made man. God has made this world. And all of these things that we experience, all of this ability, intellect, desires, emotions, all these things, all come, though polluted, come from God. They never evolved nor were they given from some other God. I think it is divine and providential that we are where we are in our confession of faith. I thought about that as I was putting this together. I thought, you know, how good is our God that we be here in this text of scripture with these things on my heart and where we are in our confession of faith. I think it's just perfect. It allows us to sort of think well, holistically about the whole thing, and I find that to be comforting. I don't know about you. Well, now that have we addressed, and I've drawn your attention to what we call the efficient cause, let's begin to look at these proofs that demonstrate that the rich young ruler was spiritually dead. And let's look at these proofs and then we can begin to ask ourselves questions or maybe we have someone that God's brought into our life that are asking us some of these questions and we can now hopefully be able to take this text and these doctrines and help them. Well, what's the first sign of this spiritual deadness? Well, the first two are are similar, but they are different, but they are certainly related. But the first one I want to address is: Well, the rich young ruler didn't know Scripture. He didn't know Scripture. Now let me unpack it a little bit. Are you, you say, Pastor? Are you saying that I, I I have to know all of Scripture to be saved? Well, you need to know some. You need to know some important ones. How could you have knowledge? How could you have confidence if you didn't know scripture about who the Savior is or about what God demands of you or about what you must do? If you don't know these things, then how can you act with any confidence or assurance according to these things? But he did not know scripture. Now, he interacted with scripture. I mean, he knew the commandments, but I'm going beyond that. I'm going beyond that surface understanding of the scriptures and telling you he missed it. He, He missed it. Let me bring to you a verse of scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 and 7. Paul writes to this young pastor, and he says that that when he talks about these covenant breakers, when he talks about this, this current rebellion that they are witnessing in the first century, when Paul is identifying them, one of the things he said about them, he says, that they have a form of godliness, but denying its power. Well, that's the rich young ruler. He had a form of godliness. But he he denied the very power of it. He didn't know God. He didn't know scripture. He didn't know himself. And even when he was given the remedy for, for what he sought after, what did he do? He walked away from it. He was denying the very power offered to him so that he might receive everlasting life. And many do this. Why? Because the cost of discipleship is far too great. Most people want to come to Christ on their own terms. That means they want to come to Christ on their own terms, on their own schedules, their own ideas, their own pet preferences. Their preferences ultimately become really the doctrines that they really will argue about. They won't argue about anything else important, but they will certainly argue about their preferences. So Paul tells us to have a form of godliness but denying the power. In verse 7 he says, Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, we're going to stay here a little bit. Always learning. Always learning. Never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now let that simmer in. Let that distill in your hearts. Do you know many of the people that have went on to be great heretics, cult leaders, started in the church? I mean, two right off the top of my mind, right? The leader of the Jehovah Witnesses and the leader of Mormonism, Joseph Smith. They started out in the Christian church. And they despised the doctrine of God's eternal decrees and salvation. See, they set up under many Bible studies, I'm sure, like most other, Christians, and, but did they ever come to the knowledge of the truth? No, they never did. But I'm sure they were always sort of learning, always asking questions, always never really able to grasp the basics of the gospel. And that's what's essential. Now, how do we apply this to the rich young ruler? Well, the rich young ruler had multiple passages of scripture from the Old Testament that led him to the truth. I mean, we can start at Genesis 3.15, we're not going to do that. Why, that's that promise, that original promise of God after the fall, that he is going to send a redeemer, the seed of the woman, to destroy the serpent, the dragon. But let me just give you a few scriptures that he missed. The first one, Genesis 6, verse 5, and then Jesus saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, that passage doesn't address outward obedience at all, does it? What does, what's the condemnation of God Almighty about the inhabitants in Noah's day? That they were extremely unrighteous, they were wicked, and where did that wickedness stem from? The heart. And he includes all men in this category. Well, you say, well, what about Noah? Noah would have fallen into this category apart from the grace of God. But it was the grace of God that saved Noah. It was the grace of God working in Noah. What? That needed faith that he had to have in the coming Redeemer. Redeemer. The rich young ruler did not have this. He did not recognize. He would would hear these passages. He would listen to them, and he never came to the knowledge of the truth. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's a great question. I mean, that's a good question. Who can know it? Well, Jeremiah answers the question. Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of of his doings. Well, what would be the fruit? What would be the reward of someone trying to work their way to heaven? Someone trying to to bank on their external obedience to the law. What would be the reward for such an effort? Death, not life. Because again, not knowing the scriptures, not knowing the doctrine of the word of God, not recognizing that God's law demands God's moral law, that law originally written on the hearts of all men, that law that was defaced but still stands valid after the fall of man, that law that was opened up on Mount Sinai in the 10 commandments, that law that we possess in our Bible and that we see naturally in this world, beloved, that law demands exact perfection. And once you violate it, you're no longer able to live up to it. He should have known this. He should have known this. Again, always learning, but never coming, never coming to the knowledge of the truth. What did he say to Jesus Jesus wasn't wrong bringing up the moral law. Jesus didn't somehow trick him. I'll demonstrate that later. No. He hears Jesus and where he should have responded, yes, what an exact what an exact standard of obedience, my Lord. But I have failed. I have fallen. I have not honored these commandments. I have lusted in my heart. I have coveted other things. I have dishonored my parents in my mind. Help me. He should have been like the one who wouldn't look up to heaven who beat his chest and said, have mercy upon me, O God. Remember, this is the successive order that Luke has given us. We're to ponder these things. The just reward for any person seeking to offer to God their external obedience, beloved, is death. Not life. Job chapter 15 and verse 16, he writes, he says, How much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. He didn't know this. And yet, this was his Bible. Psalm 51 in verse 5. I mean, he would certainly have read the Psalms, right? I mean, David was a hero in Israel. And certainly the Psalms, they were read every Lord's Day or every Sabbath day in the synagogue. And it says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He didn't think so. He he heard these things, beloved, but these, his presuppositions to a works salvation deadened his ears and his heart to hear that he needed a savior. Presuppositions are powerful. That's why when we talk to one another, we always, you know, we don't understand why people take certain positions. Why? Because presuppositions have to be put, you know, you have to deal with presuppositions, When you're dealing with the lost, when you're engaging the lost, you have to deal with presuppositions. Jesus is doing that with the rich young ruler. Psalm 53 and verse 3, every one of them has turned aside. They have gone, uh, they have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now that's not Paul. That's not Paul. That's the psalmist. Proverbs 28, verse 26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. He would have learned this one from his youth. From his very elementary days, he would have been nurtured and raised on the Proverbs, and he missed it. Now, beloved, there ought to be at least a a modicum of application here that have we really listened to the scriptures? Have we heard them? Have we learned? Have we been taught? Have we truly received instruction? Have we wanted the gospel on our own time, our own schedule, in our own way? I mean, we don't want to be inconvenienced, right? Right? I mean, that's the whole point of the text. I mean, what, I mean, notice, Peter sees it. What does Peter do in verse 28? Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. Lord, we've been inconvenienced. Um, what's gonna happen to us? And what does the Lord do? The Lord, again, what is the Lord Jesus doing here? Let me tell you what he's doing. He's, he's acting like the great shepherd. And he's comforting this ignorant sheep, Peter. Peter, don't worry about these things. I've got this. I'm going to reward you. Peter, there's nothing that you have given up that you won't receive a hundred times over. Isn't that, isn't that, I mean, incredible of a Jesus hand, the way he handles Peter? I mean, but Peter gets it. Peter sees his engagement with this rich young ruler, and he's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. How do we know we're saved? How do we know we're gonna be rewarded? And remember, where does that desire for reward come from? From the very beginning. The very beginning of time. God put it in our hearts, beloved, that we can be rewarded for what? Being good, the day you eat of this tree, you will die. But if you don't eat of it, what will you receive? Eternal life. That's from the very beginning. Maybe one, Maybe we have time for one more of the four. But I hope you see the connections. I hope we're able to make these reasonable, and, and at least they're reasonable, set before you. They are at least clear. So he didn't understand Scripture. But he also, because he didn't understand Scripture, he didn't know God. He he didn't know God. Well, turn to Matthew 16. This is... In verse thirteen and following, we see um, we see that our Lord is asking the disciples, "Well, who do men say that I am?" Verse thirteen and following, and um, you can see in verse fourteen that they said to Jesus, "Well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets." and he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, brothers and sisters, there is a vital relationship with the father and the son. And one of the reasons the rich young ruler did not know God, he didn't just simply not know the scriptures or the God of scripture, but he didn't know Jesus, God's son. Well, he didn't know him in his formal capacity. He knew him as the good teacher, the good rabbi, the teacher that's better than the others, but he did not know him as divine even when Jesus prompted him to do that. Well, there is none good but God alone. So Jesus was already prompting him to recognize the standard of goodness and who is truly good and to recognize Jesus as what? Well, God. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. And and this may be where we are—we end due to the time. You—you are not a Christian. You can't be a Christian. It's not just that you simply don't know God. But how do you know you don't know God? Well, you don't know His Son. Because to know God is to have God reveal to you his son. Okay? To know, listen, let me say it again. How do you know you don't know God? You don't know God when you don't know his son, because to know God is for God to show you his son. It's to move beyond the creator relationship to the savior relationship. It's one thing to know God as creator. It's a completely different matter to know God as savior. And those are the two ways that God expresses himself in the Old Testament as creator and savior. Creator and savior. He didn't know God, and yet all of this time, the rich young ruler is obeying these laws because he believes that in them, he's safe. By doing it, he's safe. And yet he's never truly, he never really could silence that nagging lack of, uh, that, 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 that gnawing of, well, a lack of assurance because that assurance, as I taught you what last week, is produced by the spirit. The spirit of God comes to the child of God and witnesses to their spirit that they are children of God. That's Romans chapter eight. It's a divine witness. And he didn't have that because he never won. He didn't know God, he didn't know Jesus. He knows Jesus in a very temporal sense. Well, what do we make of this, and how do we sort of encapsulate what we've heard thus far? Well, beloved, listen. I, I, I dare, I'm afraid that there are many who sit in church and have these crazy dichotomies of God and Christ. You know, that's where you get, well, God of the Old Testament is angry. But Jesus is sweet. And there's these dichotomies that are created because we are our own gods. The scriptures aren't guiding us. The scriptures aren't leading us. The scriptures aren't instructing us to say, you know what? There is only one God, and the God of the Old and the New Testament is the same God. And that God is both gracious, kind, and good, and as we confessed this morning, and he is also angry with sin. Now, it changes relationship when he's angry as creator versus angry as a father. Redemption changes that. There's a difference in standing with God in a courtroom and standing with God in his house. There's a difference in being judged by him and sitting at his table and being a son and daughter. See, that's the difference. And those are true differences and real differences. And that's what we are here to learn about. That's why we're here to make sure that we're not in the courtroom, but we're in the table, we're in the kitchen, we're in the dining room, and we're sitting at his table. But we can't sit at this table, beloved, if we remain ignorant Oh, who he is. God is beautiful, good, kind, loving, wrathful, just. And like, the, like we confessed, and he will by no means clear the guilty. So what are we to do with this? Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. As I'm going over the next couple of weeks to address this relationship of law and gospel, law and grace, what I want you to see is that they work harmoniously together. They're not opposed to one another. And we're going to see that. But what I want you to understand is how do we identify? Listen, there's a lot of religious people. Do they really know God? Do they really know God? Well, are they professors? Do they know Jesus? If they don't know Jesus, they don't know God. And if they don't know know God, they don't know Jesus. They go together, and that's exactly what John says in 1 John chapter 5. That's what it is to believe that Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent, this is eternal life. And beloved, listen to me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth will set you free. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see that this morning these are truths that set you free, that liberate you, your mind, the bondage of your mind. We want to do away with legalism. We want to, we want to avoid two extremes, And this is my motivation for spending time here. We want to avoid legalism. And we want to avoid this idea that there is no relationship with law and grace. We want to avoid those two extremes. Because those are very valid extremes that exist among Christians today. They just depend on their goodness Or they absolutely think, hey, I've just made a profession of faith. I don't have to do anything, Uh, nothing. I'm just free to do whatever. That's what Paul said. All things are lawful for me. And that's why you find many Christian pastors that have committed adultery one, two, and three, and four, and five times. That's a fact. That's why you see the churches so bankrupt and so anemic, and so weak in this culture that we live in because we have forgotten what we were created to be and what we are recreated to be in Christ Jesus. Bold in righteousness by grace. Let's pray. Now, gracious heavenly Father, We've just begun to touch on these proofs, Lord, of this man's religious bankruptcy. Lord, let us not be found among them. Let us take to heart these things. Let us consider them and let us... Father, look afresh and anew to your word. Let us be knowledgeable of the word of God. Let us us be knowledgeable, Lord, that that's where we go to learn of you, to find you, to seek you, Lord, to, to believe in you, to have faith in you, to know you. Let these truths give us great encouragement and courage. Lord, that the day in which we live, we have answers. We have the answers. Lord, let us not be duped, tricked, or beat down by these false gods, but let us heed the word of God. Let us heed, Lord, boldly and with courage the gospel of Jesus Christ, and let us announce it to a lost and dying world that knows, O Lord, that knows there is an eternal reward. And we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.